Welcome to Blunt History, a podcast dealing with the history of the war on drugs told, well, bluntly. We think it'll have you saying, what the F? We're your hosts, Natalie Brennan and Stina Perkins. We're in the 50s? We're in the 50s and early 60s. Which administrations are we focusing on? Truman was still in office until 1953. Last episode, we discussed the way in which the dangers of marijuana were explained through the threat they posed to white women. This narrative only heated up in the 1950s as the criminalization of marijuana comes into full force. In 1951, the Juvenile Court for Los Angeles County created this 10-minute film called The Terrible Truth. Here's a quick snippet of that. Hundreds and hundreds of teenage boys and girls are becoming hopeless dope addicts every year. It's fantastic, it's unbelievable, and it's terrible, but it's true. This is the home of Mr. and Mrs. Walter Howard. They just got their teenage daughter back after a six-month nightmare that even Edgar Allan Poe couldn't have improved on. Mrs. Howard agrees to let us talk to her daughter, Phyllis, when we explain that we could use her case to help others avoid the same mistakes. This promotional material was quite common during this time. This was part of a larger pattern. In 1953, the American Weekly ran this huge piece called I Trapped a Dope Ring, where Patricia Williams discussed how she came to help the police catch a multi-million drug operation. Patricia is white? Patricia is white and quite literally describes her drug dealers as little Mexicans. Right away, in the first paragraph, quote, Once I recognized Cello, the little Mexican who kept me in supplies in return for my car to deliver junk in East L.A., end quote. Okay, so Patricia wasn't innocent. She was using the drugs, too. Entirely, which is the only reason why I'm pointing out these racist descriptions. I'm not just saying, look at how messed up this is. It's especially messed up because the entire narrative that ensues is someone who is using drugs herself is quite literally criminalizing the people she uses to support this habit. Criminalizing both legally and verbally. These racist sentiments set up an othering, but then the very act of helping the police expose the sellers is an act of making someone a criminal. Right. There's more here. So Patricia got caught up with the cops. She was a heroin user. And the cops made her a deal that if she could help them catch the big drug dealers in the area, they would help her get better. Which is maybe the definition of privilege. Yes. This is the narrative that ensues during the 1950s. We alluded to it last episode, but this story really highlights it well. For users, the administration was calling for rehabilitation. It was quite progressive, actually. Well, I'm pretty hesitant to use the word progressive, and maybe you'll see why, but it's one of the times in history where we see an administration calling for rehabilitation instead of punishment. Rehabilitation was the call for white users who were portrayed as victims, getting mistakenly caught up in drugs. Harsh criminalization was the call for drug sellers. Which brings us to the Narcotic Control Act of 1956, which I guess was under Eisenhower? Mm-hmm. Eisenhower came into office in 1953, right at the same time that these narratives were unfolding. The Narcotics Control Act toughened the federal penalties established in the Boggs Act of 1951. The Boggs Act received its name from its sponsor, Hale Boggs, who was a Louisiana Democrat. A Democrat supporting drug laws? Say it ain't so. 
It's so, of, of course it's so. <laughs> the Boggs Act set mandatory sentences for drug convictions. A first offense marijuana possession carried a minimum sentence of two to 10 years and a fine of up to $20,000. And then the 1956 Narcotic Control Act changed those sentences to be more strict. And this is just at the federal level. States were following suit on their own. A 1956 Louisiana statute provided mandatory sentences ranging from 5 to 99 years for persons who sold, possessed, or administered narcotics. In Texas, possessions for marijuana was punishable by two years to life. But at the federal level, the Narcotics Act's mandatory minimum sentences were increased to a five-year mandatory minimum sentence for drug traffickers, for a first offense, and a 10-year mandatory minimum for all subsequent violations. I say traffickers because this was the intent of the bill, to stop drug trafficking. Right, and what is interesting, though unsurprising, is that this bill also in some ways becomes an immigration bill. Trafficking was seen as something corrupting America, an outsider issue infecting the pureness of Americans. This Narcotics Act then amended immigration laws to make narcotic offenses grounds for the exclusion or deportation of non-U.S. citizens. Also, the bill made sure that courts couldn't interfere with these laws through their individual discretion. Again, here we see the way in which the war on drugs intersects with the war on crime, intersects with the war on marginalized identities in America. The conflation of crime and immigration status is unmistakable here. It's the U.S. in the mid-50s. The hot wars of the Cold Wars are just about to heat up. The U.S. is turning its attention from communist Russia towards communist China. It was believed, or at least projected, that making the younger generation one inflicted by addiction was a goal of the communists. Subversion through drug addiction was plugged as an aim of communist China. And I guess we should mention that now we're just talking about heroin more than we're talking about marijuana. I believe that marijuana was categorized as a narcotic specifically so that this new act could refer to both marijuana and heroin. But the idea was that Chinese manufactured heroin was being spread through the U.S. to destabilize Americans at home and servicemen elsewhere in the world. And this is where we see rehabilitation efforts come in to preserve American stealth. In regards to these efforts, they appear to be more of recommendations. The report suggested that federal facilities be made available to receive addicts committed under state laws if the state court ordered mandatory incarceration. Then, once they were released from confinement, addicts would be kept under supervised probation for at least three years with periodic examinations. But again, these were recommendations. It's not clear how many of these goals materialized, but... Either way, this is closer to a rehabilitative model than we've seen elsewhere in American drug laws. It was youth that was the main concern. Addicts under the age of 21. Just a year earlier, our guy, J. Edgar Hoover, the FBI director, the one who fired all the female agents, he released an article in the American magazine, Successful Living for the Family, called You Can Help Stop Juvenile Crime. We're going to read the first two paragraphs of this article. We are rearing the finest crop of young people today that the world has ever seen. American boys and girls are healthier, better informed, and more mature for their years than any youngsters have ever been. According to the U.S. Children's Bureau, 49 out of every 50 children under the age of 18 have never been brought before the juvenile courts and are law-abiding youngsters. Good old youngsters. Continuing the quote, But the 50th child, usually a teenager, represents a problem and a challenge to us all. 
He is the youngster who has committed one or more criminal offenses and has been classified as a juvenile delinquent. Before we can have a completely wholesome society, this boy or girl must be converted into a decent and law-respecting individual like the vast majority of his brothers and sisters. While juvenile lawbreakers are only a small minority of the nation's youth, they have been increasing steadily during recent years. Currently, they are committing crimes at a rate out of all proportion to their number. Okay, so reference to youngsters, law-abiding citizens, sisters, brothers. This is pretty light language. Innocence is definitely being portrayed. I don't hear marginalized youth today being referred to in this way as youngsters. But this document does something that today seems to get pushed away, ignored. Listen to this. Quote, to prevent such a crime wave, we must first explore the reasons behind the rise in juvenile delinquency, end quote. J. Edgar Hoover says that no child is inherently bad, but something in his environment has instead gone bad. And this is, of course, Hoover's gendered language, not ours. This might be the point where you think that Hoover begins an in-depth analysis on the socioeconomic statuses that cause the need for crime. Poverty? A nation built on a false notion of freedom and liberty? Slavery? Race relations? No. (laughs) This is not where this article goes. Hoover instead calls for a prioritization of religious ideals. Better family structure. He gives 10 steps to being a better parent. Other documents surface at this time in the same suit. In 1958, another article called Shook Up Generation looks at what's gone wrong in the suburbs. But this history is about to take a major turn out of the suburbs, away from white youth, away from restorative efforts. Because it was not all of America that these restoration politics were calling for. Large populations of Americans felt their needs were being ignored. Next episode, we're back to the war on crime. Next episode, we're looking into the riots. If you want to see any of the documents we referenced in this episode, our sources can all be found on What The F's website in the Podcasts tab. Like What The F on Facebook to get notified when we release new episodes. I'm Natalie. And I'm Stina. And this was Blunt History. Blunt History.